So with that, let's learn a little bit more about Jesus. Open up our Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 5. Again, that's the Gospel of John chapter 5. We're going to begin at verse 19 and take a look at this text that goes through to the end of the chapter. Let me pray and then we'll begin our time in God's word. Father in heaven, we pray and we ask that now, by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit, that you would make our hearts and our minds alive to your word. We believe that it is, Lord, the word of truth. And so now we pray that you would speak to us and do a work that goes far above our intellectual apprehension or understanding of this, but does a deep work of the Spirit even beyond, Lord, what we can understand. We pray this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 5, beginning at verse 19, let me read the first few verses of our text. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Previously in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, we saw that Jesus performed an amazing miracle. He came to a place in Jerusalem known as the Pool of Bethesda, and gathered around the Pool of Bethesda were perhaps hundreds of people sick, blind, injured, uh, infirmed, whatever their condition was. And Jesus picked one man out of that crowd and he marvelously healed him. He told him to rise, to take up his bed, and to walk. And the man did those things. And we would think, well, that's the end of the story. What a wonderful healing. But there's sort of an interesting backstory to that whole occasion. The backstory works like this. It was the Sabbath day And when the religious leaders saw a man carrying around his bed mat, I don't know if he carried it under his arm, I don't know if he carried it up on his shoulder, but when he was carrying around his bed mat, they saw it and they said, that's work and you're not allowed to do work on the Sabbath day. Well, they questioned the man and the man just said, listen, don't blame me. The guy who healed me said, carry your bed. And so I did it. When the religious leaders found out that it was Jesus who told them they wanted to confront Jesus over what they perceived was his sin of breaking the Sabbath. Now, we spoke about this last week. Jesus did not break God's command regarding the Sabbath, but he did often offend men's traditions surrounding the Sabbath. So there's a difference between the two. But Jesus used this occasion to tell the religious leaders that he and the Father were at work together on the Sabbath day. This astounded them. So beginning now at verse 19, Jesus is going to explain much more about who he is and his relationship to God the Father in heaven. And friends, I'm going to tell you something about the section that we look at together right now. It is a deep passage of Scripture. Without exaggeration, I say that I could spend easily five or six weeks preaching through the section that we're going to cover over the next half hour. But I tell you, I'm not going to do that because we're going to take a look at it as Jesus delivered it. Jesus didn't deliver this message to the religious leaders over five or six weeks. He did it in one occasion. 
So we're going to take a look at it at its entirely, but I want you to understand the context. Jesus is explaining to them about who he is and his own relationship with God the Father. And that's why he begins there in verse um, 19 saying, the son can do nothing of himself. In other words, what he's trying to say is that God the Son does nothing independently. He was and he is fully submitted to the Father's will. Friends, that's partially inherent within these designations. We call God the Father or God the Father reveals himself to us as a father. And the second person of the Trinity reveals himself to us as a son to imply a natural and appropriately hierarchy between the two. The father has authority over the son. The son is submitted to the father's authority. It is natural and appropriate to those titles from which they reveal themselves to us. So Jesus simply says, hey, I don't do anything except the father tells me to do it. So when I told that man, rise, take up your bed and walk, I did it because my father told me to. I do everything in submission to him. You have to understand me. That's how closely united I am with God the Father in heaven. And then he adds this in verse 19. Did you see this? Whatever he does, that is the Father, the Son also does in like manner. Friends, that's an astounding statement. Whatever the Father does, the Son does it in like manner. Do you understand what Jesus is telling us? He's telling us something that he's going to tell us several times throughout the Gospel of John. So we'll take a look at it, but it's a good thing for us to consider again and again. What Jesus is telling us is that if you want to know what God the Father is like, look at God the Son. If you want to know the nature, the character, the works, the will, the personality, if you will, of God the Father in heaven, then look at Jesus Christ. He is the perfect representation of God the Father. Friends, this corrects an error that many of us make. And if some of you make this error, you have it in your mind right now, I don't really blame you because it's a very common error, but I'm glad to correct it right now. Many people have this strange idea when they think of God the Father and God the Son that somehow they're very different in their personalities. Here's how it usually goes. God the Father, he's the mean one, always judging people always mad at them, always laying down the laws. That's God the Father. God the Son, well, he's the nice one. He's the one patting children on the head and, you know, sort of skipping through meadows filled with daisies and just loving everybody. You know, kind of like the hippie Jesus. That's kind of the idea behind that. Friends, that is a wrong conception. And Jesus tells us it's wrong right here. Can I read the verse to you again? Verse 19, whatever he does, that is the Father, the Son also does in like manner. Now, this error comes from two causes, and I'll explain them to you. The first cause is people miss the great revelation of the love and grace and mercy of God the Father in the Old Testament. And friends, I don't deny for a moment that the Old Testament shows that God is a God of judgment. On Wednesday nights, we've been teaching the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah shows God to be a God of judgment. No doubt about it. But it also shows God to be full of love and mercy and grace and care. It's in there. You just got to see it. Look for it. It's there. But then people also make a second mistake. They miss the righteousness and holiness and divine perfection of Jesus, God the Son. 
In other words, they make God the Father out to be unloving, but sometimes they'll make God the Son out to be unrighteous or unholy, and neither is true. You take a look at the full biblical picture of God the Father, God the Son. You see that it's not like a good cop, bad cop situation, not at all. It's that no, they are one in the same in the expression of their heart and their will. Different persons, but similar and the same in seeing one and seeing the other. Well, as Jesus continues on, verse 21, take a look at, he talks about the works of the Father and the works of the Son. He says this, verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now notice this. The Father and the Son are so united in their work together that verse 21 says that just as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Friends, do you understand this? Jesus said that he had the authority to give life to whomever he will. Then on the final day, when all are resurrected, when whatever immaterial part of their spirit lives on and a person is resurrected from the dead, that it'll be Jesus himself that calls people to that resurrection. I don't know how well you describe it other than saying that that's ultimate power. That's power for a person to have that kind of authority. That's power that none of the great men or women of the Bible ever claimed to themselves, but only the unique son of God because he and the father are the same in their deity. But notice this. There is a division of labor between the father and the son. Verse 22 says, but he has committed all judgment to the son. Jesus used the work of judgment as an example of the division of labor between the father and the son. It is before God, the son, that people will stand before an answer to on that great day of judgment. They will stand before Jesus of Nazareth. And friend, what a solemn thing that will be. Can you imagine what it'll be like to stand before the throne of God and see Jesus himself upon the throne and have to answer for why you rejected him and have to answer for why you mocked him and have to answer for why you said, no, Jesus, all you stuff, that stuff you did on the cross, forget about that. I'll do it myself. That is a heavy burden to have to answer for before the very son of God. But Jesus says it very plainly. He has committed all judgment to the son. Why? Look at verse 23. That all should honor the son just as they honor the father. Friends, that's an amazing statement. Jesus said that everybody should honor the son, Jesus, just as they honor God the Father in heaven. Now again, I want you to picture how Jesus is giving Jesus is not saying this to an empty room. As Jesus said these words, he's saying it to angry religious leaders who think that Jesus went too far in telling a man to carry his bed on the Sabbath. Now friends, if you think that Jesus went too far in telling a man to carry his bed on the Sabbath, how are you going to feel about him saying that he and his father are so united 
that he and his father are just the same in the sense that just as you honor the father, so should you honor the son. I want you to visualize the looks of astonishment on the faces of the religious leaders that heard Jesus. They can't believe what they're hearing. You're saying that I should honor you just as we honor God the Father in heaven? That's absurd. That's idolatry. I'll go over this river. It's blasphemy if Jesus is not who he says he is. Do you realize Jesus doesn't leave for us any second option on this point? This is a very clear claim to deity. To stand before people and to say, just as you honor God in heaven, so you should honor me. Friends, if a man doesn't have the credentials to back that up, then he is a blasphemer. If it's not true that Jesus is that united to his father, that they are both equally God, then Jesus deserves to be set aside as a madman, as a blasphemer, as an evil man who called people to idolatry, not to true worship. And failing to honor God the Son means that it's impossible to also honor God the Father who sent the Son. Now he continues on into verse 24. He says this, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Now notice notice the amazing, astounding statements that he makes. If you think that the religious leaders were astonished before They're certainly amazed now. Their their jaws are practically dropping to the floor as Jesus says these words. Verse 24, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me will have everlasting life. You want everlasting life? Hear the words that I say. Honor the one who sent me and you'll have everlasting life. Friends, that's a bold statement, but not more bold than what Jesus says directly in verse 25. Did you look at that carefully? Look again at verse 25 and notice what Jesus says. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. You see, Jesus already explained to them that the one who lives can hear his word, believe, and have everlasting life. Now he says that even the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and they will be raised again. Friends, again, these are plain claims to be much, much more than a mere man. And then he adds to it. Jesus doesn't draw back at all. It's as if he's not going to put his foot on the brake, so to speak. He's going to push down the accelerator even more. He speeds on forward into verse 28 and he says this, do not marvel at this for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I cannot myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus now was so bold to proclaim to these religious leaders that there was an hour that was coming that people were in the graves would hear his voice. Friends, that's God speaking, isn't it? Have you ever gone to the grave of somebody that you know and love? Maybe you speak to them. 
You wonder if they can hear you. Now, friends, I tell you this. I know that they can hear God when he speaks. Because Jesus says something so astonishing in the next verse, in verse 29, where he makes two parallel statements where he talks about, look at it in verse 29, the resurrection of life and the resurrection of condemnation. Jesus tells us something not only remarkable about himself. I mean, hasn't he exalted himself in this great discourse, telling us how great and majestic he is? He has. But now he tells us something about you that you need to pay attention to. And this is what Jesus tells you. He says that you are eternal. You will live forever. That everybody, whether they've done good or whether they've done evil, everyone will live forever and experience a resurrection, either a resurrection to life or a resurrection to condemnation. Have you thought about that lately, friends? Have you thought about it that this life is not all there is? Have you thought about it that when a person dies and we look at their body and their body is dead, and isn't that a strange feeling looking at a dead body? You have a sense that something's not there anymore, don't you? And you're exactly correct. There is an immaterial part of that person that lives on even when the body is dead. But friends, this is what God says, that not only is it true that that immaterial part of the person lives on, but that in the world to come, God will take that immaterial part of the person and clothe it once again in a resurrection body. Now, oftentimes you just think of that in terms of the good news. Woo, I'm going to have a resurrection body and I'm going to walk the streets of gold and go through the pearly gates. And that's what people who trust in Jesus believe, yes, that they have that heavenly inheritance. And isn't that good news? Isn't that good news, friends? That here, if you are a believer, that this life is the worst it's ever going to get for you. That's it. That you've got a heavenly inheritance and a resurrection awaiting you. That this is God's good news. But I wish that it stopped just at the good news, but it doesn't. Did you look at the other phrase in verse 29? Friends, I don't know if there are three more chilling words in the New Testament than these three words. Resurrection of condemnation. The fact that every person you meet is immortal. They will live on forever. It has a beautiful destiny on the one side in heavenly reward. But there is also a resurrection of condemnation. Does this make you a little uncomfortable that I speak about this? Well, good, because it makes me a little bit uncomfortable. The fact that this is true sobering and one thing it means is it matters what we do with this life friends I don't know if you believe it or not I don't know if you believe these words that Jesus said or not maybe you believe them maybe you don't but I'm just trying to explain to you what Jesus said Jesus made it very clear that there's two destinies here there's a resurrection of life and there's a resurrection of condemnation now if Jesus is true about this You can decide for yourself. He gives you that gift. He gives you the honor of saying, I'll let you decide whether or not you're willing to believe this. But if Jesus is true about this destiny of a resurrection of life and this destiny about a resurrection of condemnation, do you not see that there is nothing more important in this life in making sure that you end up on the right side of that equation? If this life 
is only a small piece of your eternal existence, how important it is for you to take seriously your responsibility to use this life to prepare for the next and to make sure that you do not end up on the bad side of that line, the resurrection of condemnation. Now, friends, I can't get this picture out of my mind of Jesus discussing it with these religious leaders. And I don't know how many of them there were there, 10, 15, 20. I don't know. I'm just guessing. Who knows? But you look at Jesus speaking to a group of religious leaders and they can't believe it. They're just, how can any man say this about himself? How can any man who stands right in front of us and we can hear his voice, we we can even feel his breath as he speaks to us, how can this man say these things about himself? And I wouldn't be surprised if it was somewhat of a dialogue. If some of the religious leaders go, what what, what about, how can you say this? How about this? Who do you think you are? Wouldn't that be a logical question for them to say? Can't you just hear one of them saying that? And so we have a little transition here at verse 31. I wouldn't be surprised if one of the religious leaders kind of spoke out, who do you think you are? And Jesus says, I'm glad you asked that question. Let me explain to you. He's going to explain to them, starting at verse 31, going through the end of the chapter, this is who I am according to the witness or the testimony of several different witnesses. I'll bring you testimony. Notice how he establishes it first in verse 31. He says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. Jesus is explaining this to the religious leaders. You guys have just heard what I said about myself. Pretty big claims, don't you think? But I don't want you to believe it just because I say it about myself. I'm going to bring other people to testify about who I am. Friends, isn't it true that anybody can say anything about themselves? You can say, I'm the greatest this, I'm the king of that, I'm the most important. Anybody can make whatever self-claim they want. What I want to know is, does anybody else make testimony about them up to that end? And Jesus says, I've told you what I've said about myself, but I don't want you to go just on that. Let me bring testimony from witnesses to prove what I'm saying about you. And friends, there is a very important principle in what Jesus gets across to us here. The principle is this. Jesus expected us to believe him based on testimony, not on blind faith. Jesus doesn't come to us and say, well, let me throw out a bunch of audacious claims and you just believe it or you don't. No, Jesus says, I'm going to bring testimony all along the way. This person will back me up. This thing will back me up. I'll be backed up here. And then you're going to see five different things bring testimony to Jesus between now and the end of the chapter. And he calls them as witnesses on his behalf. Jesus calls you and I to faith, but not to blind faith. He calls us to make a step of faith. And it's a legitimate step. Make no mistake about it. But it's not a leap of blind faith. It's based on testimony from more people than just Jesus himself. So let's take a look. First of all, it's going to be the testimony of John the Baptist. This starts at verse 33, where we read, You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning light and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. Hey, guys, remember all that stuff about John the Baptist? Remember what he said about me? Well, why don't you just believe him? You accepted him as a shining lamp. You admired John as a prophet. Are you forgetting what he said about me? He said, 
Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He said that I am the Son of God. Just believe what John said. That's my first witness that I call to give testimony about me. What's the second testimony? Look at it right here, verse 36, where he says, But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. He goes, okay, you don't want to believe John? Believe the works that the Father has given me to do. Now, I don't know if the man that Jesus healed recently was beside them, but I wouldn't mind Jesus putting his arm around that man. This guy, paralyzed for 38 years, and with a word, with a command, I raise him up. Why don't you start believing the works that the Father has given me to do? And it's as if Jesus says this. Look, guys, I know it's a remarkable claim in your ears that I claim to be the Son of God. But I got the stuff to back it up. Look at the people I heal. Look at the power that I show over nature when I command a storm to be stilled or bread to be multiplied. Look at how I'm transfigured on the mount in glory with Moses and Elijah. Time and time again, he says, look at the works I do. But you know what? In my mind, even though this knot has been completed yet in the narrative of Jesus's life, it's almost as if he's looking forward to the greatest work that he would do that would proclaim his deity. And that's the death that he died on the cross for you and I and the resurrection that evidenced that God accepted the work that he did on the cross. You want to know my work, he says? There's going to come a greater work than ever. The work that I do in atoning for the sins of the world, of making a sacrifice that's perfectly pleasing to the Father. You take a look at that future work that I will do, and you will be persuaded that I am the Son of God. Do you remember what the Roman centurion said when he saw Jesus died? He said, surely this is the Son of God. That was the greatest work that he ever did. And it testified of who he was. So you have the testimony of John the Baptist, the testimony of his works. Let's look next at verse 37. It says, And the Father himself, who sent me, has testified of me. You've neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you have his word, excuse me, you do not have his word abiding in you, because when he sent, whom he sent, him you do not believe. Jesus said, listen, the Father has testified to me. How did the Father testify to the Son? Well, he testified him through the scriptures repeatedly. I'll tell you another way that the father testified to the son. It was at the baptism of Jesus. In the gospel of Luke, when Jesus was baptized and he came up out of the water, do you remember what happened? A voice spoke from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Friends, if you or I or anybody else would have been there at that moment, we would have said, good enough for me. He's the son of God. The Father testified speaking from heaven, but not only through that great occasion of Jesus' baptism, but also through the scriptures. And now he's going to teach more about the testimony of the scriptures here in verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. Friends, look at that phrase in verse 39 where he says, you search the scriptures. Now it was true of the religious leaders in Jesus' day. These men were Bible experts. They took the Hebrew scriptures and they studied them exhaustively, memorizing many long portions of the Hebrew scriptures and being masters of the different rabbinical writings and interpretations. Friends, they knew it. They knew it backwards and forwards. They knew it front to back. But isn't it frightening? They knew it, but they missed Jesus in the midst of it. 
I think of that and it frightens me. I'll tell you why it frightens me. Because I've given my life's work to the study and the understanding and the explanation of this book. I I don't hold back from saying that at all. That really is my life's work. To study, to understand, to explain this book. When I read that the religious leaders of Jesus' day, that they diligently search the scriptures, when I know how diligently they did, and yet when I see that they still missed Jesus, it's a huge wake-up call to me, perhaps to you as well. It shows me that a person can be a master of the ink on the page, but still miss Jesus. Friends, don't we need to be called back to this again and again? That if we think we know our Bibles, but we're not desperately in love with Jesus, if we're not surrendered to him as Savior and Lord in our life, then there's something wrong in our Bible understanding. That all of that mastery of the scriptures should lead us again and again to surrender and submission and love for Jesus. And I mean, but Jesus said that the scriptures, what do they do? Verse 39, he said, these are they which testify of me. The the, the problem with you religious leaders, it isn't that you don't know your Bibles, uh, you know your Bibles too well. The problem is you don't know them well enough. Because if you really understood your scriptures, you'd understand that they testify of me. If their study of the scriptures was accurate and sincere, they would see that the scriptures spoke of the Messiah, God, the Son. But now Jesus is going to explain to them in verse 40 the reason for their unbelief. Look at this. He says, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Friends, there's two striking things as Jesus explains their unbelief and as he opposes their unbelief right now. I want you to notice it in verse 40 where he says, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Why? Because they weren't smart enough? Why? Because fate destined them not to come to Jesus? Why? Because they weren't born into the right family? No. Why did they not come to Jesus? Because they were not willing to come. Do you see the great privilege that God gives you? He lays out the truth before you about who Jesus is and what he did for you. And now he looks to you and says, are you willing to come? If you're not willing to come, then there's nothing more God's going to do. But he says, are you willing to come? And do you see why they were not willing? They say in verse 44, Jesus explained that they do not seek the honor that comes from God, but they're concerned with the honor that comes from man. Boy, this hits right home in the 21st century, doesn't it? How many people do you know who accept aspects, oh, oh, they believe sort of the punch list about Jesus, Yeah, I believe this, I believe this. But they're not willing to come to Jesus as Lord and Savior. They're not willing to come to him with a surrendered life. Why? Because, oh man, my friends will think I'm so weird. 
My, my friends will think that, oh, you know, I, my family, oh, my friends, I can't do that. What is that? Except living for the honor of man instead of the honor of God. Just say, that's why you're not willing. Because you're so concerned with the honor that comes from man. Well, why don't you get more concerned about the honor that comes from God? And finally, verse 45, and we conclude with these last few verses. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Friends, he's given them five aspects of testimony. You have the testimony of John the Baptist, the testimony of the works of Jesus, the testimony of the Father, the testimony of the Scriptures, and now number five, the testimony of Moses himself. He says in verse 46, if you believed Moses, you would have believed me. Why did they reject Jesus? Because they rejected God's testimony through Moses, which pointed towards Jesus as Messiah, as Savior, as Lord. And friends, if they refuse to believe this overwhelming testimony, they're not going to believe Jesus' own words. So Jesus comes and he tells us with his own words, I'm God. I'm the one who will raise up everybody on the last day. It is before me that humanity will stand in judgment. I have the power of resurrection and life. He tells us he's God. But then he says, well, okay, if you don't believe me, then believe John the Baptist, believe my works, believe my father, believe the scriptures, believe Moses. Friends, at the end of it all, if you're going to reject what Jesus says about himself, and you're going to reject the testimony of those five witnesses, who can say you didn't know? Who can say that the evidence wasn't presented before you properly and accurately? But you were not willing to come. Now, in just a moment, we're going to pass out the bread and the cup of communion together. This is a beautiful time for you to declare your willingness to trust in Jesus and to receive who he is and what he did for you on the cross. I can assure you, nobody's going to force feed you the bread and the cup. You have to be willing to take it. I pray that that would be an emblem of your willingness. And friends, you might say, well, David, 40 years ago I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Wonderful. Are you willing to do it again today? Because friends, isn't that something that needs to be done day by day, repeatedly before the Lord? Jesus, we thank you that you so magnificently display to us who you are. It's so unmistakable, Lord. You said it clear enough that we, we get it, Jesus. We get what you claim for yourself. We, we get what, what John the Baptist and your works and the Father and the Scriptures and Moses, we get what they all say about you. But now, Jesus, it comes our place, our time, to submit and surrender ourselves to it. So help us to do so, Lord. And I pray that you would use this act of the Lord's table, the bread and the cup, to be a demonstration of our willingness to receive Jesus. Let it be so for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.